All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, this prophecy of Isaiah is very familiar, I trust, to many, if not all of us. And we, on the other side of the cross, we can read these words, and to us it just makes perfect sense. We marvel sometimes at those who were literal descendants of Abraham who could not, and even to this day, do not see. And a veil is is over their heart and over their eyes. It's so clear, so very obvious, so much so, as I'm sure some of you have heard, there have been times in which in in evangelism, uh, one will, will bring this chapter of the Old Testament to a Jew and he hears it and he says, I, I don't want to hear the New Testament. And yet such is the power of the human heart to resist the very clear grace of God. Oh, let it not be so with us. Let us not read and reread and reread the same passage of Scripture with a hard heart. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. And don't become hard if you have a soft heart. Oh, it is so very easy to develop a hard heart even under the most warm and loving overtures of grace. But as we consider especially a particular line, a verse of this grand and ancient prophecy of the suffering Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 6 in particular, we have, yes, we have a prophecy concerning things to come some 700, more than 700 years before, boys and girls, the very coming of Jesus. These things are spelled out with great detail. But we have at the same time a confession. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. The Israel of God here, through the mouthpiece of the prophet, the Israel of God, the true church under the law, confesses that notwithstanding their their waywardness, rebellion, and deviance, Yet Jehovah has in His boundless mercy and love imputed the whole guilt of the sins of His people to the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, that He might bear their fearful punishment. With God's help, let us consider this grand Prophecy and confession of faith. All we like sheep have gone astray. Consider three points with me. First, the Israel of God prophetically confesses. Second, the Israel of God prophetically distinguishes. And third, that Israel of God, the church of the Old Testament, prophetically magnifies. 
She confesses, she distinguishes, and she magnifies. First, the Israel of God. And when we use that language, we know that we are not making it up. This is from the Apostle Paul, who, by using such language, is affirming that not all those who are of Israel are of Israel. Or, Romans 2, he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, nor is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. It was always that way. There has been a visible people of God, but not everyone who was a part of that visible people of God were were truly God's children. The Israel of God is that church within the church. It is those who have come to understand their sin. They're not being forced to this. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. This is what we confess. And this is radically bound up with our faith in the Messiah to come. That even as the Holy Spirit moving the prophet to speak of these things that are yet on the horizon, at the same time, the faithful are receiving and believing and confessing. All we like sheep have gone astray. She confesses her frightful guilt. In particular, the church confesses her collective sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. There is none righteous. No, not one. Isn't that interesting how the Apostle Paul anticipates that objection? You can almost hear it. Don't you even have it in the back of your minds? Now, hold on just a moment. Surely there are some righteous. What about, what about Father Abraham? What about David, the man after God's own heart? No, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. This is the verdict of the Lord upon Jew and Gentile. And not just those dirty Gentiles who don't know their right hand from their left. Who trample upon the moral law that they have written on their hearts. Oh no! You who who boast in the law, you descendants of Abraham. You who say you shall not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who, in boasting of the law, you transgress the law and you dishonor God. No, there is none righteous, no, not one. Well, what shall we say of even the prophets? These men who who stood for Jehovah when no one else would. 
Boys and girls, you know the story of Elijah. Look at all those prophets over on that side. And they also have the power and the backing of the king and the queen. And there is lonely Elijah on the other side. People are snickering and laughing at lonely Elijah. What about the prophets? Well, what about Isaiah? How did Isaiah feel about himself? Did he distance himself? Did he say, no, I am holier than thou? How does he feel when he has a vision of God? Of one high and lifted up. His train filling the temple. And he hears those angels. Angels that had to cover their eyes and their feet before the presence of God. And what happens to Isaiah when he sees this vision of the Holy One? He collapses to the ground and he says, Woe is me, for I am undone, for my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. And he feels this deep sense of guilt, interestingly, concentrated in his tongue. The very organ that the prophet used to serve Jehovah. Lord, I am a man of unclean lips, dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Oh no, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have all gone with the herd and encouraged each other in sin. Sin is not just a private thing, friends. It's also a, a social thing because we're social beings. We influence others and others influence us. We can either influence for good or for things that are not good. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made all Israel to sin. Woe to those who put a stumbling block before others, who draw others away into sin. Well, this is what we do with each other. We infect each other. We influence each other. We instruct each other, whether by word or by example, in disobedience. Exodus 32, the Lord complains, they have turned aside quickly. They have turned aside quickly. No sooner had the Ten Commandments been delivered to Moses. We might even say that the very engravings were still warm. That they're down at the base of the mount committing gross idolatry. And this is the people of God. What might you be drawn to do in a desert with no water? You think you're so very good. Oh, it's easy, easy to pat ourselves on, the, sh on the, the shoulder, isn't it? 
Oh, I would never do those kinds of things. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molted calf and worshipped it and sacrificed thereunto. Even Aaron, Moses' brother, he gets dragged into this. What flimsy excuses he makes. Well, they... They gave me this gold and I put it in the fire and then out came this calf. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We have all yielded to folly and blindness and waywardness. There's the image of the sheep, the stupid sheep. Constantly going in places where he shouldn't go. He thinks it's better. And then he gets stuck. I've only heard about sheep from others who have more knowledge, but perhaps some of you have seen that video floating around of this, this sheep that gets stuck in this, uh, this crevice, this, this ditch, and some kind soul pulls out that sheep. He bounds up, jumps up, and then jumps right back into the ditch. And you go, are you serious? And yet how different, how different are we from that foolish sheep? The Israel of God prophetically confesses sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. But not only collective sin. It's easy. It's easy to hide between, be, behind the we. All of us sin. We're all sinners. But to take that home to a personal confession, confession of my own sin and my own particular deviance no, the church confesses, we have turned everyone to his own way. Employing our individuality. Psalm 119, 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. I have used the gifts of my mind, my imagination, inventiveness, devising iniquity upon their beds. Doing it in our shape, with our, our texture, with our odor. You know, we all have a, we all have a scent it's not necessarily a bad thing. You go to someone's house and perhaps you notice it's just, just a distinct thing. You, you notice it's not a bad smell, but it is distinct. We don't notice it ourselves, but all of us have a scent. But, friends, all of us have a stink before God. A peculiar, shall we even say a signature pattern of sin. Some are loud mouths. They like to be heard. They like the sound of their own voice. 
Others are much more meek and retiring, but they're very judgmental. Some sin with a high hand, as the Puritans would sometimes say. They do it with boldness. I did it my way. And I don't care what anyone thinks. And of course, our culture is only encouraging that kind of thing. You do you. And you get applause for discovering yourself as you create yourself. We have turned everyone to his own way. In the broad road that leads to destruction, there are many lanes. Have you ever been in an extremely large city? You take the, the on-ramp and then realize the next exit is right up there over to the left and you've got to cross seven lanes to get right over there. Well, there's an awful lot of latitude in that broad way that leads to destruction. And you can chart out your own signature course. It's your way, but it's not God's way. Your, may, your way may involve going to church, dressing up, singing from the Psalter, and even keeping the Lord's Day. But maybe it also involves secret uncleanness or pride, self will. Maybe your way is not a sophisticated way, but a rather simple way. Others, they have a way that's much more developed and nuanced. God has given them a lot upstairs. And they, they allow their minds to explore forbidden paths. But at the end of the day, it's not God's way. It's your way. And that's the tragedy. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We have all engaged in that turning of the back against God. They have turned unto me the back and not the face. We we have done so collectively and individually. And each and every eye has made his own declaration of independence from God. In fact, you made it an Adam. And that's why you go astray as soon as you are born and you embrace your individuality. And behind all this is a fundamental aversion to God. The carnal heart is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. We might even, we might even speak of this in terms of distaste and even disgust. John Owen says that the fundamental problem is the heart's dislike of the ways of God. 
Now that word dislike, it doesn't sound so bad, does it? But when you put it in this uh, language, the heart's dislike of the ways of God. I don't like it! And the voluntary relinquishment of them thereon. Father, I don't like your home. It's one thing to do what's right. It's another thing to like doing it. To like doing it for the right reasons. I went to church when I was a boy. My parents made me do it. I didn't like it. Until God made me like it. But I didn't come from the womb that way. I didn't like the restraints. I didn't like the, the God-centeredness. All we like sheep have gone astray. We didn't like God's ways. We have turned everyone to His own way. And so, and between the first and the second parts of this, this verse is the implication that we all deserve judgment. Which leads us to our second point. The Israel of God prophetically distinguishes. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. To confess it is to acknowledge not only the wickedness and the guilt, but also the damnableness of the sin. The wages of sin is death. But the Israel of God, the church of God, Isaiah being the mouthpiece and being moved by the Spirit of God, lifts the eyes of the church who know and understand their sins against a holy God and that they deserve God's wrath and curse in this life and in that which is to come. And as we move into the New Testament with progressive degrees of clarity and revelation, we see that death in the grave are much more profound than one would have ever imagined. And while we get illusions and, and hints, it only becomes the more clear under the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, who speaks about outer darkness in that place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. All we like sheep have, turned, uh, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We have brought upon ourselves the wrath and curse of God. All of us, including the prophets. But... There's someone else. This is not simply a confession of the, the sins of the people of God. Isaiah 53, this, this glorious prophecy about the one. There is the, the many 
and there is the one. Really, all of Christian truth can be reduced to that simple uh, twofold reality, the one and the many. As by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And there is this contrast, isn't there, as we make our way through the prophecy between we and Him. He is despised and rejected of men. And we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. He was despised, we esteemed Him not. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. The Holy Spirit, through the mouthpiece of Isaiah, sets forth the hope of that one. And, and when we say hope, we're not talking about a wish and a sigh. We're talking about a sure hope, because when God promises it, it is as good as done, which interestingly is reflected in so many of these verbs in the past tense, 700 years before Jesus. It's as good as done. Although we have gone astray, we have all turned to His own way, there is another who is distinct. He is separate. He is not in the same category. He is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and because He is so, He is able to be and has been the divinely appointed Savior. And yet, beautifully, there is real solidarity between the one and the many. He arises from them, and so can represent them. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. The Word was made flesh. He did not take upon him the nature of angels, but he took upon him what? The seed of Abraham. He became one of them. He was one of us. He is one of us. As you have heard this morning, He remains ever one of us. And yet now He is exalted to the right hand of the Father. But it was not so in the days of His flesh. He took upon Him the form of a servant to do the hard work that no one else could do. And he represented them, the sheep, the stubborn ones, the thick-headed ones, 
the mischievous ones, the curious ones, the daring ones. Those who charted out their own way, those who were reinforced and helped each other in charting out a course against God. And he came for those sheep. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Particularly. And we could say a lot more on this point. But it's enough to say that Jesus did not die for a vague generality. He died for sheep. He died for certain sheep who had certain sins. He died for men like Peter who was overbold. He died for those who forsook Him. He even died for one that thought he could serve God by eliminating the synagogues of these pests, the Christians, who even held the garments of those who were stoning one who stood for the gospel. Now, if you were to tell that man before the Damascus road that he was one of the sheep for whom the Messiah died, he would laugh in your face. And then he'd arrest you. But Jesus had a sheep there on the Damascus road, and he had paid handsomely for him. He shed his blood. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. And when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. All those that the Father gives to me, they shall come to me. I shall purchase them, every last one, and I will gather my sheep and others who are not of this fold. Them also must I bring. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord, God the Father, hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And let us not miss, dear friends, dear brothers and sisters, not only the love of the Son, but the love of the Father. The Lord, God the Father, laid on him the iniquity of us all. God, so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. 
This is the greatness of the love of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit to redeem disobedient, wayward, stray sheep. Here in His love, not that we loved God. We didn't love God. Here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Which leads us third and last. The Israel of God prophetically magnifies, that is, magnifies the free and unmerited loving kindness of Jehovah. The second part of this this verse shines the more brightly against the dark backdrop of the first, doesn't it? And that's why when we emphasize original sin and total depravity, that's why, in fact, we are able to set forth an even greater and grander vision of the love and grace of God. Because we're taking seriously the dire problem And that the only way to solve this problem is not by God through a fiat, just simply brushing away our sins, which he can't do if he is to honor his own righteous character. So great was the love of Jehovah that he provided this suffering servant And it wasn't an afterthought. 700 plus years before the coming of the Messiah, it's all mapped out. And isn't this prophecy further an echo of the decree that God would save sinners, certain sinners, And that He would do so by giving His Son, taking our flesh to be the scapegoat. The Lord determined from eternity and prophesied by the mouth of all all His holy prophets since the world began that there would be one, a seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David and the Son of God. That he, that he would be oppressed and afflicted. That he, not the people, not the ones who had sinned, but that he would close his mouth. That he might be brought as a lamb to the slaughter. He would be as a sheep, but not like the foolish sheep. No, he would be the sheep in the sense of the innocent victim, willingly going. The Lord imputed the world's guilt, the world of all those, from every tongue, tribe, and nation. 
the weight of each sin of each individual sinner of the elect added to the weight of all the sins of all the individuals of that elect world as the priests, you know, boys and girls, the hands were placed on the head of the scapegoat. A sign of the transfer of the guilt of all the sins of these people. And think of it, dear friends, it's not just your stubborn, proud, deviant, dirty sins. It's him and her and her and him and this great numberless multitude of unworthy sinners. The sins not only of a day, not only of a week or a month or a year. Sins not only of of the hands, the big ticket sins, but also sins of the mouth. Oh, the sins of the mouth. What a little fire. What a great fire. A little fire. Even the fire of the tongue kindles. By your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. And also the sins of the mind. Striking in the autobiography of Uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, how she had a certain discovery of herself as a total invalid, paralyzed from the neck down, as at a certain point she gave herself over to all kinds of sins of the mind because at that particular time she was so angry at God that she just gave way and, and the Lord began to show her You don't even need your body to trample my law under your feet. All of these sins that he never committed, although he had every opportunity, he was tempted at all points like as we are yet without sin. Durham says, the iniquities of the elect, there's so many brooks and rivulets of water, any one of which is hard and difficult for them to pass over. But oh, when Christ comes to satisfy for them, they are brought and gathered into a great lake, or rather into a vast sea or ocean together. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he paid. And he paid the last might. We have no idea what was on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. We have inklings, but we have little more. You can't even understand your own sins. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. And yet even the forgotten sins or the never consciously realized sins, all of those were fully and exhaustively accounted for and placed upon his head and he paid them all. 
And now, praise be to God, we can announce to you it is finished. What God promised to the fathers by the prophets, indeed what He decreed from eternity past, He has now fulfilled. And this is the good news. This is the gospel. And oh, let us never tire of preaching and hearing the gospel. He has done it. He has done it all. There is nothing more to be done. Nothing more can be done. Except to receive it. God commends His love to a world of wretched sinners in that while they were yet sinners, when they were not thinking of God, when they were not living for God, God was thinking of them. God was sending His Son for them. The gift of God the Father was the substitutionary, sacrificial, satisfactory death of God the Son in the person of Jesus Christ. Those are very big but important words. Upon these things hang our destiny, our hope. Our reconciliation with God? Our peace? Our everlasting blessedness? Our joy? How can we have any joy if God is against us? If God is angry with us? We're just kidding ourselves. But the reality is in the fullness of time, God did what He said. And though we all like sheep have gone astray and turned every one to his own way, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he has satisfied the justice of God. And he has satisfied the good pleasure of God to save this world. And so we read, as no doubt, brethren, you heard this morning, that congregation of the church militant, they sung a new song in heaven saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Now I close Asking, have you ever been a sheep? Have you ever been a sheep? Now you can answer that theologically, of course. If you get the wrong answer, you haven't been listening, and you need to go and listen again uh, to this message, or at the very least, reread what we have read in Isaiah 53. But what I am asking you is if you have ever really had it dawn on you 
What a foolish, rebellious, and stubborn sinner you are. That you have no excuses. That you have been a fool. Is this your confession? It was Isaiah's. If it was good enough for him, it is certainly good enough for you. But you've got to take it on and you've got to wear it. Yes, the stinking, rotting, mildewy rags. You've got to take them and you've got to put them on. You've got to embrace this reality if you are to be on the receiving end of the grace and mercy and love of God in Christ. Because if you have never sensed that you are a stray sheep, Pastor, this just doesn't apply to me. You don't know what a lovely, free, reformed person I am. I've probably been in church more than you have, Pastor. Heard more sermons than you even. Yes, but you have, have you been a sheep? Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you have never been a sheep, then you have little to do with a shepherd. And I say to you, whatever your way is, you're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. Oh, that you would understand. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter at the end of the day whether you are able to live to a ripe adult age and do the really big, fun stuff. It doesn't matter. If it's not God's way, and if it's your way, it's the wrong way. And don't wait. Break with your folly. Break with the herd. Some of you... Some of you are followers. God makes all kinds. Some are leaders in sin. Others are followers. If you're a follower, you've got to come to your senses and repent. Break with the herd. Break with the spirit of this age. Break with your ego. We have turned everyone to his own way. You've got to veto that. And don't wait. Don't wait for the day of grace to end. Don't wait for God to take you from this world. You have no guarantee when you leave this place that you will be in your bed tonight. You don't know that. And if you die as a stray sheep, you are lost and lost forever. But above all, behold the love 
the wonderful, boundless love and grace of God in Christ. If you understand yourself to be foolish and helpless and that you need a Savior, don't delay. Betake yourself to Jesus Christ. He gave Himself for sinners, even the worst of them, even the chief of sinners. If He died for men like the Apostle Paul, whose hands had the blood of Christian martyrs, then He can handle your sins. Have you received this gift? Have you accepted? Oh, do not delay. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all, and He presents Him here before you in the preaching of the Gospel. Take Him and And oh, Christian, take him anew, take him afresh. You need his blood, you need his his patience and his mercy every single day to live out of the crucified and risen Christ and to hear his voice. And you will hear that voice because it is not the voice of one who is threatening and uncertain, but one who loved you. And so when He speaks to you, He wants you to follow. And to follow in the path of gratitude and obedience. To Him be all the praise and honor.